0: Good morning everyone. My name is Kevin Lagore. I'm the product specialist for Skywatcher here in North America and welcome to the What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday uh, 10 a.m pacific right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. Um, the What's Up webcast is just a big educational collection of stuff. We check out everything that's up in the nighttime sky from what's ups for viewing to helpful tips and tricks about equipment and pretty much anything we Feel like doing and then of course the last friday of every month we have a special guest on to talk about all kinds of cool stuff and uh so that's what we do here um if you like what you see here um go ahead and subscribe to the channel it does help us out and um of course if you're new here welcome happy friday and then of course everyone who has joined us for previous episodes welcome back uh once again so Today we have a really good friend of ours here we've known him for a long time Um, his name is Brian Cogdale he's worked in the industry uh, for over 20 years at this point so he's very experienced with telescope equipment Uh, he's a fantastic imager and he has opened up his own uh, telescope hosting uh, site and that's what we're going to be talking to him about today about remote imaging things to consider if you're going to think about having a remote setup and kind of just go from there. So I'm going to bring Brian in. Um, Brian's in California, so um, let me pop this up. Hey, Brian, how are you doing this morning? Uh, Hi, good morning. Doing well. Happy Friday. Yes. Um, So uh, thanks for spending the, the morning with us. I know we're all busy doing stuff, and I know you've been busy, clearly from what you're sitting in at the moment, um, yeah. um, so I ask everybody pretty much the same question of how did you get started in astronomy and to where it made you want to have a you know a remote site like you've got now. Yeah, it's it
1: was. I mean, it's literally been a a lifelong pursuit. Uh, the The interest in astronomy it's one of those things where it started around like kindergarten and uh, just had a. a innate fascination with the, with the stars and so you know as a kid you know pouring through books and getting more fascinated by it and then being in the growing up in the in the bay area in san jose it just it seems to me like it was very astronomy friendly um, astro clubs were accessible um, you know i could you know drive somewhere uh, later as i got older and easily get access to any kind of telescope and um, you know, meet with the with the astro club, so that was that was good. And then at some point, at some point, I decided, oh, I should put a camera on the telescope. And that's, you know, that was the beginning. And end. that's as, and a lot of hobbyists know that that's that's when, that's when you're not coming back when you start to get into astro imaging. You're like, oh, this is fun. I think I'll take some some pictures through the telescope. And and it's funny, the very first image that I took with film through like a 10-inch a Schmidt cast that wasn't even really like aligned. This blurry little smudge of M42, but I saw the red on the film and I was like, oh my God. And so that was it. I was at that point, I was like pursuing it more and more and getting more into astro-imaging and uh, transitioning into the CCD and digital era and doing all that. So um, so it's been a lifelong pursuit. And then uh, then the idea of wanting to be in a dark sky permanently that also started some time ago, and it was kind of a, a very long pursuit to kind of find what I was looking for, and end up where I am now. So um, it's been, yeah, the most you could count years, but you could just—it's easier to
0: save lifelong. <laughs> awesome. Um, so for those watching, you know, I'm aware of what Skies Away is, um, but. A lot of people probably don't know what Skies Away is, so can you kind of explain to people what, what is Skies Away? I know it's kind of a pretty broad thing, but it's, it's now evolved into even more, obviously, from the observatory you're sitting in to a much bigger thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so Skies Away as a whole, it's an astronomy services company. Uh, we have a few people in our network, that, and we do a number of things. Uh, what we've been focusing on more recently, especially with the advent of, uh, of COVID, uh, we had in the past been doing some events in the greater Los Angeles area, uh, but primarily we've been focusing more on the consulting uh, side of things. We've actually helped a number of people uh, remotely with uh, with astrophotography, and then also in person for those having um, some needing some assistance in setting up their telescope. And more recently, into doing full observatory installations for, for some clients. So we've, uh, we've now reached the point where we actually are uh, providing observatory install services um, from start to finish, you know, uh, which includes consulting and, and working out what the needs are for your particular setup, for your location. Um, and now, as you can see behind me, um, the, the, this is the one that I've been working on for some time. So, this is now, we, Skies Away now, we have our first Skies Away remote observatory. So, this is a, a full time uh, commercial build roll off observatory where uh, we can host telescopes here. Um, and, you know, and many of us are familiar with a number of different, uh, a, a number of different uh, solutions that exist around the world with this type of setup. And I'm just really excited that we're now able to partake in that. The great thing about that, so you know, so like I say, telescope hosting from our dark sky site, um, it's in such a way that we're just able to make our nice dark sky. It's a portal to sky here. um, We're able to make that accessible to the world. um, You know, being connected and um, being uh, allowing anyone who wants to have their setup here full time, 24/7 astro imaging. um, You know, collecting data becomes easy. You do it in your sleep. And I know a lot of us. Um, that's kind of like the ultimate goal is like as far as astro imaging goes, it's to be able to just do that, wake up and have a beautiful set of data and take a lot of that work out of it. So so yeah, so wrapping that up, it's yeah, you know, astronomy services and now our our big our big debut is this um, this commercial roll off for dark sky
0: telescope hosting. And um, so yeah, you know, I, I know there's people are probably familiar with um roll off roofs and domes and stuff like that normally they're just something you have in your backyard but you know a hosting observatory like you've got is a rather large uh facility what size is the roll off um that you're in now yeah this one
1: is it's just about 500 square feet um and i because i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of flying solo as far as the operation goes so at first, I'm like, "Oh, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get a roll off and put 20 peers in there." And I thought about that. I'm like, you know, I want something that's that's um, manageable for myself. So this is about 500 square feet, um, and it hosts uh, six piers, um, very comfortably. It's like over a seven and a half foot uh, footprint for each for each peer. And depending on what might be installed, there's a couple of peers that are actually uh, allow even more space and more overhead clearance so that, you know, you can put a pretty large instrument in here. And uh, so, yeah, and you make a good point. Yeah, there's a lot of, obviously, um, a lot of backyard type of observatories, and I've done that too. I've built uh, a nice nice little roll-off, enjoy that. And there was a lot of learnings in that too, uh, which definitely helped um, lead me to this building, which addresses a lot of the issues that I think many of us face, um, especially with the the roll-off style of observatory building. You know, everything's a compromise. Um, Domes are great, roll-offs are great, and they all have their their pros and cons, but uh, I've tried to address many of the issues that you would actually encounter. Uh, One that you might see, um, just even looking behind me, big overhead clearance um, on purpose, so there is no, there's no need to park the telescope. That was a huge, for me, absolute requirement. I don't even want, forget about um, diodes and limit sensors and warnings. I don't want to have to park the telescope, no matter where the telescope's pointed. And if something occurs and I need to close the roof right now, I just close the roof and don't even sweat about it. Um, So that's that's, uh, one of the big ones that we addressed. And then the other thing is a lot of times, an observatory um, will have a, a roll-off, especially will have a lot of obstruction. I tried to minimize that as best as possible, especially for the nature of a roll-off. Um, we don't get a lot of wind here, so why don't we just kind of make the telescope and pier height pretty proportional to the to the end walls? Um, so there's a lot of little considerations like that that were built into this particular observatory.
0: I know what's interesting about this observatory, I've got some friends who have some roll-offs as well. And typically it kind of looks like a little shed or a little house with the, you know, A-frame roof. And that, something like that, I know even your little one that you have on site uh, for your own use is that design. Um, You have to kind of be aware of clearance when when the telescopes are parked or even how tall the pier is or how big the telescope clearances for all of that, but what's unique about this big one, um, and um, is the roof here isn't your typical A-frame, it's actually, you know, arced, so it gives you kind of a clearance um, at that point for instruments.
1: Yep. Very good point, yeah. And it's uh, it's pretty remarkable too, this type of corrugated steel roof is pretty self- reinforcing and like self rigid. So ordinarily, you mentioned like with the A-frame, it's normal to have like, uh, cross members to, to kind of support that. And then, so you have basically, even with the A-frame, you often still have the, the lower cross member kind of sweeping across. So you're not, you're not necessarily utilizing the space within that, uh, within that A-frame. So, uh, this is all usable space. And, uh, it's actually, it's funny because the, the, uh, steel it's lighter it's lighter than stick construction because by the time if you're using you know all these two by fours and then you have this big um, you have like some plywood and on all that roofing material uh, it ends up being a much heavier structure. Um, The other nice thing about metal of course as many of us who have dealt with and I'm doing that currently with the smaller one when you have stick construction inevitably you're dealing with wood that moves and flexes and, and warps and you have these two tracks that should be parallel and there isn't a single roll off owner that i know of who hasn't at least you know mentioned some some form or another and have faced you know uh, various challenges with just having to keep those rails true and, and parallel at least enough to where the roof can easily roll you know not get stuck and those kinds of things so What's nice about the steel is it's self-reinforcing. Like I mentioned, you don't need the cross members. Um, it's lighter, and with this actually being a steel frame um, and on a grade beam, things are—they're going to stay parallel. Um, the sunlight isn't going to, you know, warp or expand anything, so it'll stay true like that. So I can rely on repeatable operation for this building.
0: That's awesome. And, um, I know one other thing, I've seen other observatories do this, but one thing you've incorporated is, you know, because we you are um, in center cal- central California, I think you're at about a 34-35 degree latitude at that location, so you're still low enough, um, or south enough to where some of those really unique low southern targets become feasible, but for this particular observatory i think what cool thing you've incorporated that i've seen from the building um is uh the fact that you've actually allowed the south wall to drop so you can actually get the clearance to get down into the south further um you yeah.
1: know yeah yeah so that was one that's a good point so the you can see this uh arch overhead clearance and there, there's the south wall over there um that that drops uh, because if you didn't have it drop, you would have this big arch to the south, which is the sweet spot. That's the sky everyone wants, right? Um, and it's also the sky that you can't get back if you miss If you miss some portion of the southern sky, you miss it. Whereas in the, in the north, if you have some form of obstruction, you might be able to get it, if not later that night at some point and during the year. So yeah, that wall drops. So our southern horizon is just as low as my natural topography will go. I think you can get down. I mean, you're within ten degrees uh, for basically all sides. But the south is like straight down to the horizon. Well, actually, uh, now that we got a a fully operational setup up here, I'm gonna see. We're 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 approaching um, we're approaching Omega Centauri season, and you know, in like a month or so, um, um, see, I I don't see why I wouldn't be able to pick that up from from here with that drop southern roof. And then the we also, speaking of obstruction, so as you mentioned, and the south roof folds um, down, the end wall folds down. The, the roll-off rolls to the north, which is a deliberate choice, and we have it rolling a good six, seven feet. I can go up to like more than eight foot pass because I keep the track longer, but we have a chain drive right now and it goes to about uh, uh, six and a half feet past the front end wall to minimize the northern obstruction. And even the northernmost pier, which is actually the one behind me right now, um, I'm still only getting about a 20 degree obstruction to the north, which is incredible for, considering the entire roof is to the north. um, And it's, like I say, it's rolling more than six foot past, so it's minimizing that obstruction. uh, I could actually minimize that further by rolling it another foot or two. And then if you've got one of the central piers, you, the northern obstruction is essentially a non-issue. So I think for a roll-off, it's pretty exceptional in its ability to minimize that obstruction. East and west walls, are, you're within 10 degrees. It's actually kind of up to you. If you, if you have an instrument that um, you want to go with a higher or taller pier, we can go above the end wall, and you've got plenty of overhead clearance, depending on the telescope and what the needs are. You can have as best of a ideal horizon as as reasonably possible for for a group roll off observatory.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's I, I, really gives you complete access to the sky. And I know out there your your location's really awesome. Um, like you said, it's a Bortle two sky. So if you could imagine having your your setup out there under Bortle two, um, there's not much you can't hit in that dark of a sky. I mean, that's that's even levels of research grade and i know from the i've been able to get on some of the systems that are out there um like you're one of the systems that are out there just to play with for a little bit and i know some of the data that we've got out there we're looking at you know 1.4 arc seconds per pixel for average seeing it seems like so the seeing out there is actually pretty good as well yeah that was a big one to to uh to
1: factor in because I know especially when you get into the larger aperture instruments the long focal length and some of the even the when you get to kind of research grade uh, seeing becomes like the number one enemy it's almost as bad if not in some cases worse than light pollution you absolutely need to have uh, steady seeing so we're in the um, we're in the foothills of the Santa Lucias so that's the mountain range that will actually if you follow it up it'll take you to uh, the Monterey Institute for Research Astronomy, MIRA, Choose Ridge, which a lot of uh, folks from the Bay Area like to travel to for, um, it's along the Pacific uh, Coast Range, right? So you get that laminar uh, Pacific flow. So we're not a mile high in elevation, but we do actually, we are in those that foothill range, we get this very nice um, temperate um, Pacific onshore uh, that keeps our seeing steady and uh, the actual, Local scene conditions here are pretty good too. So, we're in a gentle topography of, of rolling. Um, basically, it's uh, like rolling pasture and oak woodland and oak savanna that surrounds us, and we're on an elevated parcel. So, you get a gentle upward sloping rise to where this observatory is. And I've been measuring the the scene periodically, where we're mostly always between one and two seconds, uh, one and two arc seconds, and you get those still nights. With a little bit of humidity, you go sub arc second, that's when it gets really exciting. But yeah, seeing's a big one. And, um, and you mentioned too, yeah, the Bortle to dark skies. So if you're looking at the light pollution map, we're just inside the gray. Uh, we're between, uh, the closest city here would be Pasadena, about a 45 minute drive out. And we're basically right smack in the middle halfway point between uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco. So you obviously have those two massive light domes, then you get to the central coast of California and those light domes taper off. And um, there are some cities, uh, you know, trying to encroach with their light domes, but we're about as far off as we can reasonably be uh, and still actually live here and have, you know, obviously broadband internet and UPS and, you know, Amazon Prime and it's like kind of the best of both worlds. Um, that's an important thing too, actually the accessibility. You might want to ask me before I keep going on, but The accessibility was a big one because, I mean, we've been chasing down dark skies for years and my wife and I were all corners of California before landing here. I mean, we were, you know, far northeastern corner of the state, like Modoc and Shasta, terrific dark skies and you have winters there and then you have the eastern Sierras, also terrific dark skies. Everything had a trade-off and this was actually a really nice combination and a place that we can call home. So we're very happy to have that,
0: to have that come true that's awesome um i trying to find a picture here real quick i friends on facebook i think this is from the front yard um, let me just pop this up in front of brian here real quick but correct me if i'm wrong but i think this is the summer milky way core from basically your front yard um yeah 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 so that um, doesn't so. suck <laughs> So. And that was just
1: like casually, like me grabbing a camera and like, hey, <laughs> I wanted to silhouette that agave right there. Um, so it was, yeah, yep. And uh, there's, um, that's, that's yeah, that's the Milky Way. That was what I take that in June, a couple of years ago. And we have, uh, so that's, you're looking there at southwestern sky. You're actually looking at the only real light dome that we have, which is kind of Pasarobas. Um, it's a low light dome. I don't know how many degrees that is. Then you look uh, i'm sorry south I'm, I'm sorry we're looking southeast not southwest when you look southwest you're looking towards the, the the very bottom fringes of like big sur and the ventana wilderness and that side is border one so we're like inside of that you face the pacific ocean on that side and on that side i'm getting you know glared out by uh, zodiacal light and i when i first moved here i'm like. Oh my God! I see zodiacal light. This is awesome. I used to have to go to like a remote star party to pick that up, and now I got it from home. So I uh, was really pleased to to see that. So yeah, yeah, it's it's great. Um, and I've been playing around with the SQM and getting these these fantastic numbers. And I've I've learned to kind of like okay, take a lot of those with a grain of salt. But we're getting we're getting some awesome SQMs that are aligned with our our Bortal II two class
0: um, you know dark sky that we've got here. So um there's some questions in the feed about the observatory since we're talking about that real quick because um, i do want to get on to other stuff in here but um so for those who are watching and you have questions it is a roll-off roof so the whole metal roof above brian there does roll off completely obviously exposing all the telescopes to the sky um the south wall is the only wall that drops all the other walls maintain um they they have to hold the roof um And then the roof rolls off onto a structure, but it rolls, actually, what's interesting about yours, as you said earlier, it rolls far enough back to where north isn't really obstructed that much either. Um, and then all that is linked to very similar, I guess, to like a garage door opener, but with a chain drive that just kind of pulls the, um, the whole roof back kind of. So that's how that whole assembly actually works, but, um. This observatory, someone was asking, this holds six uh, piers at the moment, correct? Right. That's right. And that's that's six piers with, what's the footprint, uh, the real estate footprint for each pier? You
1: got a seven and a half foot uh, footprint for each pier. Um, and the two center piers, the one behind me and there's one more central pier, Um there's actually some photos online you can kind of get an idea of the of the floor plan for the piers so they have a seven and a half foot diameter which is uh actually pretty generous uh even for a group roll up it doesn't sound like a lot as a number and then you actually go and space them out and put scopes next to each other and you find that it's actually uh it's i wanted it to be relaxed enough to where i'm not stressing about not not obstruction but like stuff like you know cables or. Or if you know if you've got a 24 inch uh, plane wave Cdk and you've got like a a long like an Esprit 150 next to it, you've got these two long you know large scope and a long scope. I wanted that to not be an issue, obviously. So we we took that into account. So yeah, if you've got there's the northernmost pier and you can see two slots over. There's that central pier. You could put it especially if you were to put like a you know, a, a large L mount on that. You can fit a large telescope there, and we, you know, control the pier height and uh, not be not really be limited by aperture. Yeah, you could see up uh, the the fold down south wall there on that one photo, um, and then you see the whole thing open on the right of the screen. Um, that's with the roof obviously off or rolled off, and the south wall down. And um, yeah, so there's some there's some cool tidbits on the on the website that kind of describes some of the considerations that were put into the building. And actually now that you are showing the website, um, the nice thing, this was something I also kind of took the initiative on doing, there's, life would have been a lot easier if I just poured a nice big concrete slab. Um, it really would have, but uh, you know, concrete, it holds a, it's a lot of thermal mass. In, in concrete, and we have hundred degree days in the summer, and it can cool off at night, and you get a lot of heat convection, like 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 a, coming off of tarmac or something. So we're in a nice grassy field. It's like a you know it's a it's a pasture, and uh, it, that's you're being surrounded by like low lying vegetation and moisture that really helps the local seeding conditions. And so instead of pouring a big concrete slab, we're on a raised subfloor the only concrete that we're using is for the piers themselves, you know, big big, deep uh, piers with rebar and everything. And then there's a grade beam to support um, the, the, the structural members of the observatory. And then everything in between is just earth. And, you know, we've got, you know, grass and there's some poppies and stuff growing around. And that vegetation not only kind of keeps down the dust, but it really helps with the thermal stuff. So we're not just um, radiating a bunch of heat at night, uh, especially in the summer. When you have those hot days. Um, you tend to get, and those of us who have set up their telescope in a nice grassy field, or you go to a star party. One um, that comes to mind, like the Golden State Star Party up in uh, Aiden, California. Uh, you're on this big same idea. You're on a big pasture. You're surrounded by all this grassy field and flat topography. You end up with really nice local seeing conditions. So the local seeing conditions being. What is your actual observing location responsible for when it comes to like, you know, getting thermals and currents and that kind of thing? You can have good scene, but you might have something like heat convecting off of something. So I tried to minimize that and we else have, you know, good ventilation with the subfloor. So I say all that because, wow, I probably could have built this a lot faster if I just got a, you know, just, just poured like, you know, 30 yards of concrete and just made it happen. But this this was a very good thing I think to to
0: take into consideration. Yeah, that's when you're thinking stuff that big and all scopes that that location supports. Every every little bit matters out there. Um, there was one cust or customer. I'm sorry, uh, one person in the chat. They were asking uh, because we were talking about um, local seeing and stuff. But how many clear nights a year do you get roughly at that site? We're at and. Uh... We're at over 300 clear nights a year, which is insane. We
1: actually have had some, some. as far as astronomy goes, we've had terrific February's. As far as the drought goes, we've had some of the worst February's um, that I think have been recorded. So we actually had two years in a row with no, no rain in February, but good for the astronomers. But so a combined 300 plus nights, clear nights a year. Now some are absolute perfect um, uh, photometric nights and some are a partially if, if you have some fog and you know in the early morning or you have some high cirrus clouds if you have a partial like a spectroscopic night. Uh, so combined it's over 300 nights a year I'm, I'm collecting data as to how many of the nights are, are photometric absolutely perfect with absolutely no cloud cover or moisture and how many of those nights are spectroscopic. Um, you mentioned uh, that, yes, we're around 35 degrees north. Um, you know, like uh, thirty-five point thirty-five point eight degrees north. Um, we're, we're below a lot of uh, the rain that comes on the, along the Pacific, like the, uh, the jet stream. On average, we're getting like 15 to 20 inches of rain per year, usually between December and February. And I think the national average is like 37, 38 inches a year. You know, it's California. It's dry. It's, we're like in a dry, kind of an arid Mediterranean climate. So very very temperate weather, um, and no snow—not at this elevation—and no no like we don't get we don't get you know you know dust storms or these uh, crazy high wind during the day or especially at night um, unless we get a rainstorm or something like that. So very very temperate climate, which was another thing too. So yeah, over three hundred nights a year, you just pick a night and it's gonna be clear. And I know Kevin, you know because you've been logging in what should have been our wet season, we're getting all this data in January and February, um, you know, <laughs> and it's dry and everything. So um, I think
0: between the... Good for the astronomers, even if we're hurting for rain. I know in the your the smaller observatory that's been kind of the prototype of this, um, there are two systems in there at the moment that we've given kind of just like a prototype test thing that, you know you've been working with. Um, And from the times that I've been able to do it and some um, other friends of ours have done, I think in the first month, we had almost 300 gigs of raw data between two telescopes. Um, Of course, those are using really high resolution 61 megapixel cameras, but they were telescopes are running multiple weeks in a row, um, night after night after night with multiple people testing it. But Um, yeah, it's more of a, so clear nights are abundant. What's not abundant is the amount of memory needed to store the data that's accumulated from a lot of that. So it's interesting. We're going to, this summer is going to be interesting because this is supposed to be the, of course, winter, you get the
1: nice long nights, but what's going to happen. We're just going to get so much data. Um, and the same is true now with the advent of these high resolution CMOS cameras that are quickly becoming the norm we're gonna to start to see that the, the data storage is gonna become more and more uh, significant. And uh, another learning I know is that we're, we're capturing data faster than we're able to really do anything with. I'm, I'm still sitting on a lot of uh, raw data that I haven't processed and because it was easy to capture, now I gotta go through and, and actually uh, process them. So I think that's gonna continue to happen where you just you know, sit on mounds of, of uh, imaging data that you're gonna have to wait for some, some Cloudy time or rainy time or some downtime to actually go through and process some of that. Yeah. So it's it's
0: it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how it picks up this summer. Um. So one thing I've wanted to get into. Um. I appreciate everything we've talked about, but we I've been helping you test some of this stuff over the last couple months. Um. Just preparing for your big one here. Um. If someone wants to set up a remote telescope um i think a lot of people think okay i just send you my stuff hooray telescopes on but the telescope is actually the easy part of the entire process and there's a lot of things that have to especially safety precautions that have to be put in place for when you're running telescopes automated um so if there's uh someone who's watching who's like hey i'm really interested in talking to you about setting up something um what are some of the things that you would tell someone who's not really aware of how remote needs to work at this point, because it is a very different experience than I put it in my backyard and, you know, put some software and hit go. Um, You have to be very trusting of that system that it's not going to tear cables out, or if there's a lightning storm, it doesn't explode um, or stuff like that. So what someone who's considering maybe doing remote, regardless of, where at this point but what would you um bring up to them
1: yeah uh that's a good that's a really good question and and the term remote has become kind of a very broad kind of ambiguous thing and there's even a joke with some of the some of the guys that um uh, i set up with at the laas site down uh above uh fraser park uh, remote is uh it's kind of like for some people remote means i'm coming to the site every other night to to fix it up or you know um, sort out the cable management or figure out why something has crashed so the mindset to have is you have to especially during the the setup you have to imagine yourself not being there and it sounds very easy to think oh yeah well duh it's remote well think about it more and more and you're like yeah something very casual like I just need to power cycle something or I just need to reset or unplug the USB. Suddenly these little mundane things, if you're not physically there, you realize, oh, that's hard. And, and um, so a lot of things to address that. Uh, you absolutely need to have a remote power switch um, for whatever device you're running. You need to be able to pretend that you're there power cycling it. Um, but since you can't do that, you need to have the, the, the equipment necessary to power cycle The same goes for unplugging your USB, at least virtually unplugging your USB. Um, You can do that like um, in various ways, but you need to actually cut the USB and then plug it back in. As you know, as everyone who images knows, there's no such thing as a system that doesn't need something that, that needs to be restarted. And just picture yourself remote. Oh, shoot, my camera's not responding. No big deal. I'll just pull the cable. Oh, wait, no, I can't do that. So that's a big part of it. And then you mentioned, you touched on safety. That's a big one too. Um, you know, you're not there and a lot of things are happening and there's uh, maybe there's a static surge or some grounding issue. And I have over, I have and Kevin knows we've we've come through some hard lessons about um, even when you have clean power that has good earth ground, you can have equipment that doesn't so much want to ground so well and you can have grounding issues. So any anyone who's setting up there are, there's some gear that I would highly recommend that normally you wouldn't be on your radar, you know, things like not just surge protectors, but like USB isolators and ethernet isolators and just grounding it, like, like having a local ground, like at the building. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I don't care if you have, uh, you know, if your grid power, if your PGE meter or whatever, if you've got a, a copper rod, um you know a couple hundred feet away it's got to be at the building absolute ground i mean that's a big one um so a a lot of those things to consider and cable management has to be clean i find that sometimes easier said than done cable management you can spend more time on that than setting up the telescope so you bring that good point the telescope's like the easy part sure set it up polar align it we'll 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 get a t-point we'll have this thing pointing to within an arc minute or better of pointing accuracy and tracking will be next to perfect and that's great, that's all fine and good. Then you have all this auxiliary stuff around it and all the cables and power management and things. So, um, and so the term remote, if you really want it to be remote, you just have to imagine yourself not being there, which I know is simple, but you have to just go through all those, all through those motions of, okay, I, I need this, I need that. And so there are some, like if I had someone moving in here, I would, there are some some like basic requirements and I have some of that infrastructure in place already, like Remote power switches and Ethernet isolators and stuff, but depending on the setup. And there's more than one way to do it. That's the other problem, too. You talked to, if you ask 10 people, well, how, how do you control your telescope remotely? I was like, well, I use, you know, maybe I use the Pegasus Astro um, power, like the power accessory and an Intel NUC, or maybe I'm using the Eagle, which actually behind me, I'm using the Eagle because uh, I, I like it's, com- it's all contained. Maybe I'm using a Raspberry Pi, or maybe I'm using, uh, like um, a fusion box, a software disk fusion box. There's so many ways to do it. There isn't a single right way to do it. And I think some of those options can be a little bit overwhelming, like, well, what's the best route? The best route will depend on your particular setup and your particular needs. Um, I happen to really like the, the more contained the, the boxes, the better for, for cable management. But like I say there, there's more
0: than one, one way to do it. I know. um, So someone was asking if this is Skywatcher's remote site. Um, We do have a test setup in the prototype observatory, just to kind of help Brian knock out some of the the bugs. That was like a temporary thing. Um, But I don't know. Can I tell the story of what happened with that and what we? Uh Yeah, I mean, it's all part. Um,
1: It's all part of the learning, and it's it's definitely was. uh,
0: So um, we sent a setup out there just to shake them some things out. Um, That's now occupied by a separate system. Um, But we wanted to do it because we wanted to kind of see where things would go um, with something like this. And that's where you learn a lot of things. And one thing that's come up before, and we've heard it before, is ground loops, where the electricity just whips back around through everything. And like Brian said, you can ground everything the best you can. but until everything is isolated completely, it's not really a problem. And that's actually a, a really rare issue in the field. I, I know you've been imaging for years and so have I, and it's never really been a problem where you get like a ground loop or something. Um, we had a ground loop just randomly occur on the test setup, which fried um, the Paramount MX motorboard, fried the 16803 control board, and welded the power cable onto the motor focuser um, housing. So, um, and it's not like it's anybody's fault or anything was done wrong. It's just, it happens when you have electronics. So that's one of the reasons, all of that's fixed, by the way. Um, But that's one of the things that Brian was talking about, about isolating um, every single thing after learning about that. So the telescope behind him, and everything else that goes in there is isolated, but that's something you have to consider when doing remote. Um, I know there's some questions here. We'll, we're probably going to jump into a Q and A sooner than like now, actually, but probably be good. Um, but Brian, someone was asking, uh, what kind of gear do you need to make remote work? And I know one thing I'd like to mention is if you are going to do a remote telescope setup. You probably really want to have a mount that has like homing sensors so it always knows where to default back to you don't have to but it's it really would be more ideal but maybe you could elaborate on um, uh, let's see this questions kind of wrapped up in it. Is does Brian publish any recommended equipment list or options and equipment not recommended on his site um, so being said what are some of the stuff that you would recommend for a remote system, ideally.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, starting from the ground up, the one thing you mentioned was a big one. So the mount should really have a way to home itself, so an absolute home position. Um, If all else fails, the mount reinitializes itself to the home position. And when you think about that, no matter how perfectly, let's say you're using a German equatorial mount and you have it beautifully polar-aligned, so you know that it's gonna track well, but you, you still have the, the computer alignment, like the go-to alignment. And and if you're an advanced user, you're probably plate solving. So it takes a picture of the sky, it plate solves the star pattern, it knows exactly where it's pointing. That's great. If something were to occur, a power failure, or if the, the mount reset at the wrong time, or if something, let's say a, the clutch or something, and the mount's not pointing where it thinks it should, suddenly you have a problem because... Um, you might be so far off, or you might be pointing at the ground, you can't just plate-solve and restore, you absolutely have to have a mount that will home itself. Um, And and so there are a number of mounts that do that now, but that also, that does rule out a lot of mounts. It's essentially a requirement, because without that, inevitably it's gonna require um, physically realigning the mount, or just setting it back to its, its home position. Now, in my case, I'm here, I'm on site. If there are issues like that, of course, I can, I can address them personally. But if you're doing a remote setup, you've got to have that. So I, I'm really fond of the software BISC mounts. And I know a lot of the astrophysics mounts now have that. I have an older uh, AP900 GTO without, without the home switches or anything. But uh, the new mounts either have a home switch or they even have absolute encoders where no matter where the mount is pointed, it has a permanent account of where the mount is pointed. And you're seeing more of that now. So the absolute encoders, or the on-axis encoders uh, mounts will do that. Uh, The Paramount Mighty behind me has the home switch. Um, The limit switch is is pretty important too. Most mounts that have a home switch will have a limit switch. So it's not just gonna keep slewing, nor could it keep slewing uh, because it has internal cabling. Um, But before it actually reaches the mechanical hard stop, it's gonna have a limit switch. So if you're, something, if you've instructed it to track past Meridian and it just keeps going, it will eventually stop no matter what, because it's got a, a limit switch. This is the big one. So that's the core of your whole setup is a good, reliable mount that can home itself. That's like, um, that just makes, not only does it make life easier, you just find it starts to mesh your whole, your whole setup just starts to come together when you have this good, reliable amount. Um, then you have to have a way of, um, so instead of traditionally you'd have a laptop and you're just a bunch of usb cables to the telescope um, it's kind of like that but instead of a a, a laptop you want to have something more contained and this has also been um, a very rapid progressing trend there is the eagle the eagle is a perfect example of that um, it's a windows 10 pc and but it's more than the sum of its parts so it's like well it's just a pc that's contained in a box well yes but there's more to that so that box, um, it's the PC controls everything, USB. Um, it has its own power manager, so you can actually toggle your accessories on and off. And the USB can cycle on and off. That one I find to be a big deal, at least the USB two ports will. I don't think the USB three ports will, but the USB two ports you can toggle remotely off and on. You can toggle any of the power ports off and on. It's self-contained, it's good for the cable management. Uh, it's, it's, it's the way to go and I uh, I pick everything up via Ethernet. Um, You can do Wi-Fi, and that's actually something our our friend uh, uh, Richard Wright really uh, advised me on, and I I wholeheartedly agree. Wi-Fi is very fun and makes life easy in a number of ways, but when you really need to connect to something um, reliably, you've gotta go hardwired, you've gotta go Ethernet, you just do. Uh, I don't care how good the Wi-Fi is, it's just, it's, as of, it's fickle by nature for, for this application. Um, you can make it work, but it's, you're, just, you're just buying yourself more frustration. So you need an Ethernet connection. You should establish some kind of, you know, a, a LAN. Uh, if, let's say you're setting this up, and even in your backyard, Wi-Fi is obviously the, the most tempting thing to do, because it's like, I don't want to trench Ethernet out too much. But depending on what you're doing, even in your backyard, I would still recommend going Ethernet. Also, by doing that, instead of a whole string of cables or the fickle Wi-Fi, you've got one nice singular cable that goes to your entire setup. So, I, you know, all I have going up the pier right now is a power cable and an Ethernet cable, and it'll do everything else. So, you know, then we're, then we're good, focusers, rotators, dew heaters, uh, the camera itself, the thermoelectric cooler on the camera, the mount, all of it is just going through these two little wires, so it helps your, your cable management. So, um, and there are other solutions like the Eagle, but that one—that one's—you uh, know—we've been setting that up in our smaller observatory, and now with the with the Sky's Away Remote Observatory here, the Eagle's been Eagle's been our our computer of choice for that.
0: Um, I know uh, someone was asking uh, real quick on the Eagle. Like Brian said, these are made by a company called Prima Luce in Italy. Um, this is an old Eagle too that's been in the sun and bait. That's not nice and red anymore, but um, they have the prima, they have the Eagle four now and there's some other, you could actually just send a laptop if you really wanted to. But the, like Brian said, the nice thing about it is, you know, if something goes on like your cameras being finicky or the filter wheels being stupid, which you've all been there, um, you can't just walk into your backyard and unplug the USB. So having something like this, where you can toggle that USB and basically remotely unplug it um, is is a really important thing when you're working remote. Um, There's a gentleman online here who is asking, uh, what is your thought between mono versus color? And I wanted to just bring this up real quick. Uh, This is a test shot from something in the smaller observatory that you've worked with. Um, This is a color shot from that Brian did from the, the test observatory right next door um, on another system um, this isn't a Skywatcher Esprit 150 but it, it's another system from what ours was but this is a one shot color camera from your site essentially so um, but I want what's your thought being that you are a Bortle 2 Skies you know color becomes a an actual viable option
1: yeah that's and I there are I tend to like the one-shot color for that reason. So, color—you um, know—the SLR cameras are all color, and there are color options with the CCD and CMOS cameras. One-shot color is is really nice for obvious reasons. It simplifies your setup. It's much easier to obtain your final setup. It has far less processing, and heaven knows all too well too. But you know, once you get involved in in uh, tricolor or narrowband imaging, and you're having to process each of the channels, and then blend them in such a way that they're harmoniously making the image that you intend, whereas one shot color is doing all that for you. Uh, A hard requirement for one shot color typically is a dark sky and there are a lot of good new um, light pollution reduction filters for imaging that do a fantastic job and the only trade off to that is your your strategically removing parts of the color spectrum. So when you use those, those filters, you get a nice image, but you're still missing out on all the true color, like what you'd get with that Horsehead nebula shot. So unless you have a particular application, or if you wanna to get to the next advanced level of monochrome, I would typically favor, for, from a dark sky, um, the one shot color. Now, um, there are, especially, there's the Pleiades, right? Uh, the reflection nebula, something like blue. You just can't, there, there isn't really a filter, but it's a broad spectrum that part, it. you just need color and you need dark sky. There's really no substitute for that, especially when you start getting to some of the dark lane stuff, like you can even start to see, um, even on this one surrounding the, the Pleiades. Now, that being said, um, you're gonna see a lot of narrow band imaging uh, and you absolutely need a monochrome camera for that. So if you think you're gonna do more um, of that and I know it can be hard if you're if you're kind of starting out it can be hard well, which one should I do I, I would say color uh, the monochrome is just a lot more work um, you can do amazing things with monochrome and you can image during a full moon uh, you can shoot through narrowband filters it's narrowband filters is not really a viable option for color it's not can, I've seen people do it but it's, it's not really a viable option for the most part um, uh, but yeah here's here's a luminance shot. Um, I believe uh, Kevin shot this with the, with the test setup. And by the way, this is F7. It's not even traditionally considered a fast telescope, but when you have dark skies like this and a good camera and a good telescope, you can pull, uh, this is pulling in a lot of that integrated flux nebulosity, that background wispy, um, that stuff in color tends to look kind of like an auburn brown. And that's when you know you're going deep or you know you're in a real dark sky, you start getting that IFN in the background. So monochrome will pull in more more data. And like I say, it's, it's more work. Um, it really depends on where you're at as, as an imager. Um, I wouldn't want to jump straight to that. I do color. But if you're in an area where you know you're just gonna hey, look, I'm in, you know, if you're in, in the middle of a, like a portal nine city or something, you might then consider just shooting narrowband and going back to a monochrome camera. But if you're going to go to a dark sky or if you're setting up in a dark sky or going to a, you know, a star party or something where you know it's going to be dark, Definitely um, go with color. And I feel like because light pollution is a real issue and it's encroaching on all, all parts of the world, it's becoming a fleeting kind of rare thing to get a nice uh, true color image that hasn't been filtered because you will see more and more, yeah, they're going to be filtered, you know, narrowband or these specialized light pollution reduction filters for good reason. But just this true natural color is becoming kind of a, a, a more of a rare thing. Anyway, I hope that I hope that answered your question a little
0: bit. Um, there's another question here. Um, what are your thoughts on pixel size? And I'll I just want to bring this up real quick. Um, Brian can probably elaborate more on it, but pixel size is all over the map, and it, it really comes down to your your telescope focal length to match up with the scene um, at that point. So, you know, I I know. The test telescopes that we've had out there, they're both the SPRI 150s. Um, they both have ZWO 6200s, which are IMX455 sensors. Um, and uh, the those are like 3.7 micron pixels. And we have to run those typically uh, binned two by two to match up with the scene at the site because the pixels are so small. But could you elaborate on pixel size of the cameras?
1: Yeah, yeah. basically you can think of it, the smaller the pixels on the camera, the the higher the resolution per per area that you're covering. And so you can measure that in how many arc seconds of sky per pixel is consumed. And that's a combination of the focal length of your telescope and the pixel size of, of your camera. And that's really your resolution, that's your image scale. So a smaller, uh, let's say if we kept all things constant, let's just use a 1000 millimeter focal length telescope like the, like the Esprit 150, it's like 1050. So it's kind of nice even number to think of, 1000 millimeters of focal length. So let's say we, we're not gonna change the focal length, but we're gonna change the pixel size. So on the ASI 6200 mm that we're using, if you shoot full one by one, it's 3.75 micron pixels. If you shot M51, it fills up a lot more of your screen. It's the, same, it's the same area of sky based on the chip size, but the pixel size will depend on, well, that will determine your resolution. So you get the equivalent of a, of a larger scale image that way. And you need to have the, the scene to support it uh, if you go that high. A lot of times we like to shoot, we're shooting two by two because it's a more relaxed, uh, it's a better match for the Esprit 150 we think, although there are some nights actually we've shot full bore one by one and I've gotten some cool shots. I mentioned M51 because we used M51 as an example of that. It's small in relation to the frame of the camera, but if we go one by one, we get a lot of good image scale. So uh, another note, a quick note to, to mention about image, um, the pixel size, traditionally, it's always considered that, okay, the larger pixels, which is true, it's the, the pixel wells, they, they encompass a larger area, so they're gonna gather more light and more sensitive to light. And that's true if all things are constant, but these new CMOS cameras, uh, back illuminated CMOS cameras pushing 90% quantum efficiency, they, you know, a camera today at three to four micron pixels in size will, will outperform an older generation CCD with, with nine on, pixels, and t- depending on depending on which, I mean, I, I'm generalizing a little bit, so I'm sure some people go, "Hey, wait a minute, I've got you know, I've got a KAF one six eight zero three. What are you trying to say?" But no, that's uh, th- there's there's the idea that the larger pixel size um, gathers more light, which is true. Um, but now that the cameras are getting so sensitive to light and the noise is so low, we're bending the rules a little bit. You're finding more and more people are shooting; they're oversampling a little bit. Uh, in fact, there's a it's a pretty old article at this point, but but Roland at Astrophysics posted a cool article about oversampling for deep sky imaging and how people tend to want to have big pixels with short focal length because everything's sharp and beautiful. You don't need good seeing, but R- Roland was suggesting you know, pushing that envelope and actually oversampling, similar to like what we would do with planetary imaging. And I think you're seeing more of that. So. Bottom line is the pixel size will combine with your focal length will kind of determine your resolution, your image scale. We're bending the rules a little bit. We can start to push that envelope because of these new cameras and their performance. And you have good seeing. You know, there's no reason not to uh, to try to push the limit. And so um, you will find a lot of uh, wide-angle astro imaging is relaxed. It's like one, two, three seconds per pixel, and so it almost doesn't even matter. I mean. Overgeneralize again. Almost doesn't even matter what you're seeing is if you're shooting at you know more than two arc seconds per pixel or three arc seconds per pixel, but you get nice sharp results, but you're not Utilizing the full potential resolution of your sky and your telescope and your and your camera So if you really and especially right now it's galaxy season now is the time you might want to push that envelope longer focal length andor smaller pixels Here's a good shot of M 101. I believe it was this one that uh, Richard Wright had, had captured with the Esprit 150 I don't remember whether he was shooting two by two or one by one on this I think one. It was a two by two shot. And something to keep in mind with those big cameras, this is still now, you're taking it down to down to 16, a mere 16 megapixel camera, binned two by two, as opposed to the 60 megapixel uh, at one by one. So you're, you're still shooting like um, basically the, the kind of resolution that, that cameras have been doing for the last, for, for many years, but with so much more. Um, sensitivity and low noise and,
0: um, yeah so there's there's a lot to, to obviously consider That's, um, so I know there's a lot of stuff that we've been talking about today um, and we are coming down to the last little bit of it an hour flies by with a lot of if you guys are interested in learning more about Skies Away or hosting a telescope at Skies Away um, you can actually just go to SkiesAway.com and then write up top here. They've got Skies Away Remote Observatories. Um, You can just click in there. And then that'll take you to, you know, learning more about the remote setup. And uh, if you want to know pricing and availability and all that fun stuff, you can just email um, them out there. And I'm sure Brian and their team will be happy to discuss any of that with you. Um, There are only six peers in this observatory. Um, So you know, maybe there will be more on another build in the future but um it would be something to think about if if you're really looking or if you've got a club and you want to do a shared telescope and you just want it in a dark sky site that's something to think about too but yeah if you're interested go to let me put that back up here um it's actually skiesaway.com is the main and then there's remote.skiesaway.com for the remote site but um that's their website give them a, an email or a call and. I'm sure Brian will be happy to discuss with you about what it takes uh, to host the scope out there. Um, I will say real quick, in case people get confused, uh, this particular site at the moment is for sending your equipment there and having access for it. There's not a telescope on site for you to rent um, at the moment. Maybe that'll be something that you guys do in the future. But um, just as I know there's been some confusion a little bit there, so...
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you for, for bringing that up and reminding me that that's it's a good point to, to bring up. It's uh, And there are there are um, solutions out there where, you know, you can rent telescopes like through, you know, SLU and things of that nature. But this is for your your personal telescope that you'd bring here. Obviously, it would be your, your personal property that you would bring here and it would be hosted here at the dark sky. Um, I'm on site, so I provide the, the support on site as well as the installation and, uh, you know, monitored things and everything here. Um, and... Uh, and the site uh, that you mentioned, yeah, remote.skysway.com. we're going to be posting the telemetry page, um, you know, pretty soon. Uh, that'll start to show you. Anyone will be able to just check that out if they want to see it. We'll be posting the, uh, the seeing uh, data from our SM1 seeing monitor. Uh, we'll have an all-sky cam, which is connected at the moment, but we're going to get all that hooked up on the telemetry, telemetry page with the, the weather, the all-sky, the seeing, the SQM. Uh, to give you an idea, so you can always just kind of check it out. Anyone could just go on and check it out. Hey, how's the sky looking today? Or, you know, or I want to I peek inside the roll-off with the because we've, we've got the cameras hooked up as well. So that's, uh, that's going online shortly, but uh, certainly uh, reach out. Uh, you can email contact at skiesway.com. We post our, our phone number there too, so you can always just call if you have any questions about kind of the particulars about how you would get your uh, setup out here.
0: very cool uh well uh thank you very much uh brian for taking the morning to hang out with us and uh thanks everybody for watching um i hope you've enjoyed it if you like what we do here at the what's up webcast go ahead and subscribe um if you want to talk to brian and reach out to them about getting your install out there because you guys are ready for installs pretty much at this point so yeah yeah, there's online (laughs) they're ready to go for your scope um take advantage of those crazy skies uh, so reach out to them. Uh, Brown get you taken care of. Um, but, yeah, if you guys have any further questions, you know, go ahead and email those direct to Brian through their website. Um, so thanks very much, Brian. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. And, of course, we will see you guys uh, next week. So have a good weekend and stay safe. And, of course, uh, clear skies to everyone as well.
1: Great. Thank you very much.
0: Right. Take care, Brian. All right. See ya.